Romans chapter 13 is where we're going to spend our time. Paul writes it this way, Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to those whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not uh, murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Those are the very words of God. Amen. Amen. I once overheard a conversation between two mothers. And it just so happens that one mother was white and one mother was black. One mother was the parent of four children and one mother was the parent of three children. And I overheard this conversation. I'm I'm ear hustling a bit as they're talking to one another. And the white mother says to the black mother, Hey, I'm just curious. When my children get ill, um, I know that they're ill because their complexion changes. But how do you know when your children are ill? The, white mo- the black mother leaned over to the white mother and said, I know by their eyes. I know by their eyes. But obviously a mom knows her children. You you probably don't even have to look at them to tell if your child is sick or not. You you know how they move and, and you know how they talk and you just know if your child is ill or not because you know the characteristics of your child. But it was crazy to me that both mothers had their way of determining whether their child was healthy or sick. 
both mothers had these cues that they would recognize in their child to determine if they were healthy or sick. I think when we come to this text this morning, that's exactly what we're going to see. When we come to this text, we see Paul giving us the indicators of the healthy believer in Jesus Christ. We saw the same thing last week, but what we're going to see this week is Paul giving us several indicators. But Paul has marched through for 11 chapters. Paul has marched through this beautiful yet heavy doctrine. Paul, in a sense, is declaring to us that the only way we can experience salvation is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He, he spends chapter after chapter declaring this to us. But then when Paul gets to chapter 12, he begins to transition. And we've said before, he transitions from doctrine to practice. He transitions from what you ought to know to how you ought to live. And so in chapter 12, Paul told us that we ought to be living sacrifices. And what Paul meant by that is that we are to give our whole selves to God and not just parts of us. We ought to be living sacrifices. Paul continued in that same vein. And what we saw last week, Paul said to us, he detailed uh, that we should have love for one another because of the love that Christ had for us. That we should love our enemies and that we should leave payback up to God. Yet this week we'll see more indications of those that have claimed the name of Jesus as Savior. But before we get to work, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Father, that you have given us a clear picture of not only what we ought to know, God, but also how we ought to live. You've given us indicators. And I pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see from your word this morning. Father, thank you uh, that you are willing and able to teach us. And that your word is good and that your word is right and that your word is truth. And I pray that we would embrace it for ourselves this morning. Father, I pray that you would move us aside, that you would move me aside, move Richard aside. I pray that you would speak freely through us, Father. Father, we we trust you to to say what you have to say this morning. Uh, May your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the first reality has got to be this, that submission to governing authorities, this is what Paul does. He says submission to governing authorities provides the context within which we can love. And we had the perfect illustration this past week. For the last 10 or so days, the primary news story has been the news story of Donald Sterling. Uh, This man who is the owner of the Clippers, who... um, talked to his girlfriend, his girlfriend kind of lured him in and was taping the conversation and he made some horrible uh, racist remarks and then she released those remarks to the press. And then what we see is that Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, came forward and said, I'm going to do a a swift investigation and then uh, I'm going to take swift action and that's precisely what he did. Uh, This past uh, Tuesday he came out and he said, um, 
Donald Sterling is, has been banned from the NBA for life, and he has been fined two and a half million dollars. So as we come to this text, uh, Paul tells us this. He said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, if you've been reading along with us in Romans, and and you read chapter 11, you read chapter 12, and then you start chapter 13, you go, what in the world is this about? I mean, it seems to have no place, and the commentaries agree that it seems to be very much out of place. Chapter 11, or excuse me, chapter 12, Paul is telling us to love our enemies. He's telling us not to take revenge in our own hands when someone has persecuted us and hurt us. In fact, he says, bless those who persecute you. And then just in case we didn't get it, he says, bless and curse not. And so Paul is showing us this radical gospel love that we as the church of Jesus Christ are to be displaying not just to those that we like, but to our enemies. And then he he comes to um, uh, um, chapter 13, and right after this whole teaching on governing authorities, he goes right back and he says, now, owe nobody anything but love. So we have love in chapter 12, this break for these several verses, and then right back to love. So what is he what is he talking about, and do these verses have anything to do with the verses before and after? And I say absolutely. Because the, the issue, really the issue that we all have when it comes to loving our enemies, and we are seeking to apply that in the world, is this. How in the world can we do that without being run over? How can we do that without being destroyed in the real world? And what we see here is that Paul is reminding us that we were all created to live under authority. The very first words of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God. And that's how we live our lives. And then the fall in Genesis 3 um, forces the issue of we need more than in the beginning God. We need in the beginning God and then we need accountability structure all throughout our society and all throughout our culture. And that's exactly what God has given us. He's given us government. He's given us regional boards, city boards, school boards. He's given us bosses at work. He's given us teachers at school. Everywhere we are, he's given us elders in a church to carry out what? Church discipline. Every context within which we live, we have these governing authorities that, that, that Paul says, this is how you and I are supposed to look at them. They are God-appointed and we better respect them. And so, what we have here in, in, in Donald Sterling and the Clippers is a case of how it works, and it works well. You see, how do we love, how do we apply Romans 12 and then Romans, the latter part of Romans 13, to this? This is how. We love Donald Sterling, and we let Adam Silver do his job. Because here's what happens to a society, here's what happens to a community, here's what happens to relationships when we don't let governing authorities take revenge and uphold justice and defend the cause of the weak and the helpless. What we do is we start playing that role. And we did it this week. Just look at Twitter, look at Facebook. I mean, the jokes and the slams on Donald Sterling... 
you know, from believers of how we're just killing him, you know. Why? Because we know that it's popular opinion that we all hate Donald Sterling. And yet from Genesis, excuse me, from Romans 12, Paul says, no, no, no. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And so apply that to where you're living right now. How can you live blessing those around you? It's by not taking the position of judge. Jesus told us this in Matthew 7. He says, do not look at the law, don't, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye until you've dealt with the log in your own. And really the text says, once you have dealt with the log in your own eye, then you will see clearly to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. The gospel of Jesus Christ that applies to us individually that says, you will not meet a bigger sinner than yourself today. The only problem is, is that you are going to meet people whose sin you'll be more shocked at than your own. So we as Christians are to live with the mirror, not on other people. Oh, I caught you again. There there you are. But we are to live with the mirror right here. And then kind of glance over, oh yeah. Well, let me tell you something. I can love you and I can accept you. Because I see myself. And God is loving me. And so this this is the key to loving. It's letting God be God. And letting us be us. (laughs) It's letting the governing authorities be the governing authorities. Letting the leaders be the leader. Praying for them. Maybe putting ourselves, wanting, if we feel called and led and gifted, maybe going in those positions, but handling it with extreme humility and extreme seriousness, understanding that it's been given to us by God. Submit to governing authorities. That is our protection even as we begin to love those around us. See, not only do we have a responsibility to submit to authority, but secondly, we need to see that we owe love. We owe love. Look at uh, what Paul says in verse 8 through 10 with me. Paul says it this way, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul says, yeah, you can take care of every debt that you have, but understand that you have a debt that you can never finish paying, and it is a debt of love. It is a debt of love. What he's saying is that you and I will never get to a place where we can say, I've loved enough. We'll never find ourselves in a place where we've loved all out. We will never find ourselves in that place. And Paul's saying, we have this debt of love. All of us have a responsibility to love like, we'll, 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 like there's no end to it. It's interesting that Paul uses these four commandments he does. He says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, and don't covet. 
each of them really focused on how we deal with people, how we treat people. But all of those regulations, it points to one thing that Paul wants to highlight, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love this. Jesus essentially communicates that we never uh, have trouble loving ourselves. That's what he's saying. What we see Paul saying is, he's saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? What's the assumption there? That we have no problem loving ourselves. We love ourselves well. We're easily self-serving. We're easily pursuing our own pursuits. We do that well. Nobody has to tell us to be concerned with ourselves, right? If we love somebody else like we love ourselves, we'll be in a good place. That's what Paul is pointing us to uh, this morning. Paul doesn't stop there. Twice in our text, Paul says that loving others is the fulfilling of the law. The fulfilling of the law. What is he saying there? The word fulfilling is in the original language, and obviously this is written in a language called Greek. And in the original language, this is written in what's called the perfect tense. The perfect tense. And the perfect tense indicates a past action with a present result. Listen to me now. A past action with a present result. What is Paul saying? Paul is pointing to the gospel here. Paul is saying there is something that happened at the cross of Calvary in the past that still has a present result right here, right now, that is pushing us, challenging us, and propelling us to love one another. To love one another. He's showing us the gospel. See, the action in the past was that Jesus rescued us from our condemnation of the law by the death of Jesus. He rescued us. And we are free to love one another as Jesus loved us in the present. We owe love. Um, I I read a book uh, some time ago, but uh, it's a book by a guy named Mike Yankowski. It's called Under the Overpass. And you probably heard of this book, but uh, there's two guys in college who literally take some time away from school. And they spend several months living as homeless people. Uh, And so they go live under overpasses and they build community with the homeless folks in several different major cities. Um, They go live in missions and Uh, They panhandle. They take a guitar along with them to play music, to to panhandle. And the stories from these two men are uh, astounding. Um, They they talk about being pushed away from church properties. Uh, They talk about uh, the looks that they got because they smelled after days of not showering. Uh, They talked about the hunger pains. And seeing church folk exit large, beautiful church structures... And never even give them a single look. Do you think that's the kind of love that we're called to? Do you think that's the kind of present result that Paul is speaking of here? I would argue against that. See, what we see is Paul talking about what the church is really responsible for is loving unconditionally. And here's what he's saying. This isn't just loving other church folk, but he's saying loving your neighbor, the people that you come in contact with on an everyday basis. We are called to love. 
And sadly enough, the church is more known for what it's against than what we care about. The church so often is known for what it's against than for what we love. We're known for being people who hate rather than people who love. It's one of the primary things Jesus calls us to do. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? So are we so quick to be known for picketing the abortion clinic when we're not beating down the doors to adopt children? Are we so quick to, to beat down the doors of the Affordable Care Act when we're not helping anybody who doesn't have access to health care? What does that say about the church and our efforts to love our cities? I think Paul is getting in our business here. And Paul is challenging us to be a people of love. Are we casting out the homeless? Looking past them? Turning a deaf ear to them? When we have an opportunity to show them affection? Paul is consistently calling us to pay our debt of love over and over again to those that we come in contact with. Why? Because we were loved first. That is so good. I I was thinking about, as you look at this whole reality that we are to trust governing authorities over us and that in that we are to love individuals, you think about um, the kind of love that Paul is talking about, that Chris just preached about, and you think about a guy like Donald Sterling. How is Donald Sterling, if he has any chance of coming to know Jesus, How's he going to come to know Jesus? Is it going to be through Adam Silver and and the commissioner firing him and taking his team away? I mean, maybe. Sometimes God uses that to humble us to our core, to help us realize, man, something's wrong in my life. But but then somebody's got to be there to love Donald Sterling. And that's how it works. Uh, See, when we're trying to play the judge... And not the one who is the recipient of grace, who's already been judged in Christ Jesus and judged righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus, then we take the wrong posture in the culture, and that's what we've done. And that's exactly what Chris is talking about. So good. But then love drives us to do something else, and that is to, to, to give God our holiness. I mean, obedience is all about love. We owe God our holiness in light of the cross. And it's interesting how uh, Paul brings us to this point. He says in verses 11 through 13, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the full armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Paul says, live as if Jesus is here. That's what he's saying. When I was in the, it was either the sixth or seventh grade, I got locked out of my house. 
And it was during the winter, and I was with a couple of other friends, and my stepfather had a Jaguar, a four-door Jaguar sedan, and the keys were in it, and the parents were gone. And so, in my mind, I somehow went from, I'm locked out of the house, to let's take a ride in the Jaguar. And so I cranked that thing up. We had, I had my friends in the car, and we're cruising around Bartlett, you know, with the radio going. And the whole time I'm thinking, oh, but please, I'm kind of sitting up thinking, they'll think I'm 16. Like, are you crazy? That's says the deceitfulness of sin. Well, I mean, it was one of the funnest times of my life up to that point. Everything was going wonderful. I mean, I felt about, you know, 20 years old. I was looking cool in front of my friends. I mean, it was all working out until we came back home and my friend's dad was pulling in the driveway as we were pulling in the driveway. And I can still remember, I mean, a split second before that realization, man, life could not get any better. And then... In that moment, I'm the biggest idiot I know. What in the world was I thinking? Regret, 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 fear, 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 shame, shame, shame. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. You're driving around. You're a sixth grader driving around in your dad's Jaguar. And he's about to come home and you're going to get caught. So wake up, church. Wake up. Quit living as if Jesus is not coming. Quit living as if He doesn't care. Quit living as if He's not here. Quit living as if sin is is right and God is wrong. Wake up, is what He's saying in these verses. You see, sin, our flesh, and the devil are always at work to the end of making us believe and live a lie. The forces of evil want nothing more than for us to call sin good and God's truth outdated, intolerant, and irrelevant. And that's what the devil and that's what your flesh is whispering in your ear constantly. God doesn't really know. He is not up to speed to our day. He doesn't know how to do marriage. He doesn't know how to do sex. He doesn't know how to do money. He doesn't know how to do business. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's going to understand because we're going to, we're going to let inform him of what love really looks like, marriage really looks like, living really looks like. You know, just sit back. Let us kind of bring you into our century. And God says, you don't have a clue. Because I can assure you, if Jesus came back in this moment, we would not be correcting Him, but He would be correcting us. And it would be that split moment, just epiphany of, oh man, what was I thinking? He talks about drunkenness. I had a friend this week call me from a former church, that, uh, and he told me that he had a friend who he thought was an alcoholic. And he said, Richard, it's so bad that I can't let him be around my wife and children. What do I do? And I said, you've got to tell him that you think he's an alcoholic and you can't let him be around your wife and children. And I said, look, it, it, he may not have this, this eye-opening epiphany, this, this moment of, oh, he's probably going to be mad at you. He's probably going to make you feel guilty. 
he's probably going to be angry. He's probably going to slam the phone down or walk out of the room because he's blind. He's captive in his sin. I mean, that's what sin does to us. It's what sin does to all of us. It makes us buy a lie, hook, line, and sinker. And what that man needs is an, he needs this eye-opening. Ah, oh my goodness, I've been living a lie, and it's what we all need. And that's what Paul is saying, live as if the light is on because Jesus is among us. And, and every second that we move forward and every day that goes by, we're getting closer and closer to the time that Jesus comes and He's among us and His kingdom comes and His will be done right here on earth. New heaven and new earth. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. Then he goes to lust. It's what lust does all too well. Lust is an extreme sexual desire. It's an over-desire. You see, sex is one of the most dangerous and, um, um, desires because it's one of the, the greatest blessings that God has given us. There, there may not be any other experience in our world that we can, for a moment of time, experience the oneness of the Trinity. Say, Richard, you're going to relate sex to the one. Absolutely. Because the two are to be one. That's what Jesus, I mean, that's what God did. He said, this is why I made it. The two are to be one. And you want to experience oneness, then have sex. And Paul brings it up later. He says, guys, if you're having sex with prostitutes, you're not going to be able to get over it. It's going to jack you up. It's going to mess you up. It's going to deal with your identity. Why? Because you are becoming one with her. See, there's some, there's big, there's big stuff. Sex is never just sex. Ever. And that's what, uh, that's what the scriptures teach us. And yet, what lust does, when we take it out of the context of marriage, is it holds up sex as God and it, it, it makes us believe that sex is better than God. It, it makes us believe that we can replace God with sex. And Genesis 4, 7 says this, If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin wants to rule over you, and there's no better sin than, than the lust of the flesh to help us understand that. Of how it, 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 it entices us in, it sells us the lie, we bite down on that lie, and we are destroyed. And I've seen it time and time again. So this is what the Scripture is saying. If you are messing around with it right now outside of marriage, if you're messing around with it in your mind, in your heart, sin is crouching at the door, and it doesn't just want to lull you. It wants to consume you. So deal with it. Talk to somebody. Get help. Share it with a friend. You see, it's interesting. It's not that God hates lust. He just hates the kind of lust that we typically participate in. I love Proverbs 5:19. This is what we read. May her, who, the wife of your youth, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Notice that the Bible doesn't say breasts are bad. <laughs> Nor does it say... Just go have as many breasts as you want. What does it say? May her breasts satisfy you. 
It doesn't say just be intoxicated with love. And that's a phrase that absolutely epitomizes our culture and most cultures in history. Just be intoxicated with love. Oh, it doesn't matter with who. It doesn't matter with what. It doesn't matter with how. Just be No, it says be intoxicated with her love. And that's what the Scriptures call us to. It's not lust. It's not sex. It, it is sex and lust according to God's good design. And then quarreling and dissension. I can't think of any argument my wife and I have had that got a little out of hand that when we thought somebody was listening to us, we didn't bring it down a notch. You see, what, you're, what you should not be doing in private, when someone else comes in the door, all of a sudden you stop. Why? Because the light comes on. And you start acting like you should have been acting before the light came on, right? So church, don't be trite. Church, act like God knows your heart and knows your thoughts, because He does. That's what Paul is saying. Well, so how do we put this to, um, how do we put this to use? Paul tells us two phrases. Verse 12, put on the armor of light. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, what does he mean by put on the armor of light? Put on Christ. I think he tells us in Galatians 3. Listen, Galatians 3, verses 23 through 26. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now listen to this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. We have already put Christ on. Through our salvation is what, what Paul is telling us. You see, friends, we are in a war, and it's a war for our soul. And the way that the devil and our flesh and the world wins this war for our soul is by convincing us that sin is better than God, that God doesn't care, but sin does. It's really that simple. But what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, put on Christ. What does that mean? It means to put on everything Christ is and has done for you. Remember the gospel. May it be your clothes. Put Christ on. May it be your light. May it be the way you look at everything in your, in your world. When, when sin comes to you and says, oh, I'm better, I'm better, you say, how can you be better than the one who came and lived for me and died for me and who will one day take me to glory? No, 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 no. I don't believe you. See, he says, put on Christ. He's not saying... Okay, Christ is a, a, an inactive participant. Take the law and try to do better. No. He doesn't say, go do better, church. He says, put on Christ. What is the difference there? Here's the difference. At one time, the law was our guardian, and the purpose of that law was to show us the absolute standard of a holy God, but we couldn't reach it. And therefore, 
We lived in this pattern of trying to reach the law, be better by the law, and yet failing miserably moment by moment. But then Christ came, and He lived under the law, and He met the law, and now He's above the law because He, he, he lived, He died for our sins, and He rose from the dead, and He's coming back one day someday. He has conquered the law by obeying it, and He has conquered our sin by becoming it and receiving our just judgment. So our destiny right now, even as we struggle with sin, our destiny, because we have Christ on us, is a destiny of acceptance and love and delight of God Himself. Now put that on, church, and I'll tell you what it'll do. I ran cross-country at Christian Brothers High School here in Memphis. And there was a difference, I noticed, between practice and game day. Because on game day, I would take my street clothes off and I would put that purple jersey on that said C-B-H-S on it. And I would stand in the mirror and I would look at C-B-H-S. And something would happen in me. All of a sudden, I wasn't just running for me, I'm running for C-B-H-S. You see, I had tried out. I'm already on the team, so now I'm just running As a participant on the team, I am running and I'm thinking about my coach who's not getting a dime, but he's showing up at practice because he loves us and he loves cross country. I'm thinking about the other guys. We've sweated together. We've run hills together. We've thrown up together. We've done everything together. And I'm thinking about then, when I'm running, I'm thinking about the sacrifices that have been made. And I'm thinking about the other guys, and I'm running not to try to be a CBHS cross-country runner, but because I believe I am a CBHS cross-country runner. And so what Paul is saying is, you are loved of Christ Jesus. Christ loves you. He's forgiven you. You're accepted. You're in. He can't love you any more than He does right now, so start running like you believe it. Start running like you're on His team. Start running like your identity is really being a Christian in Christ. Put Christ on. That's what Paul is saying. And that, my friends, is exciting. And so the only question that we have is, do you know Christ and have you put Him on? And if you have, then go love like you have and go live like you have. Give God your love, give your neighbor your love, and give God your obedience. Say no to sin and say yes to Him by His grace and through His power. That's what Paul's challenge does to us in Romans 13. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the hope that we have in You. We thank You that You are everything, that we are on the team if we are in Christ, because we have put You on and You have put us on. Lord Jesus, we thank You. So may we now see our sin, and may we be willing to come to the table and receive grace and relish in what we possess in Christ, and may we be a people that will leave here today full of Jesus, to the point that we want to say no to sin and yes to You, to the point that we want to say no to bitterness and anger and yes to You. Lord Jesus, make us the church May we go live like a people who have been loved radically. Oh God, would you give us the power to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.